You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well, today we are taking another step forward in this set of sermons called Formed, where we've just been investigating um, hearts that are fully formed, hearts that, that would reflect Jesus reflexively. How do we do that? How do we participate with the Lord? How, how do we see the grace of God like we need to see it? How do we train our hearts like our hearts need to be trained? And th- that's the part of this set of sermons that we're in, the training, the, uh, the habits, uh, the habits that we need to surround and support and to help the new hearts that Jesus has given us. And we've said over the last few weeks that there are no changed lives lives apart from changed habits. Your new heart needs new habits. And so we have been, uh, well, a few weeks ago, just in light of that, we gave you a a habit inventory uh, just to to be able to pay attention to and reflect upon uh, the habits that are currently in your life. And if you haven't done that yet, you need to jump on the Stonegate site, uh, go to Habits for a New Heart, and you need to grab that habit inventory and just uh, allow the Lord some time to talk to you and to show you so you can be aware of what habits are in my life. And then you can start to answer, what are those habits doing to my heart? And then there's the habit tracker that's uh, on the site for you. And that's really meant to, to be able to start getting in the gym, and, and figuring out the workout regimen. What are we going to do to train our hearts? What habits do we need to start cultivating in our lives so that our hearts can be formed? And over the last few weeks, we have been talking about some of the classic habits that Christians have used over the centuries to see their hearts more and more reflect the heart of Jesus reflexively. So uh, Trip Lee came in and talked about the habit of reading the scriptures. We've talked about the habit of prayer. Last week, Jimmy did such a good job of working through the habit of gathering with the church. What we're doing right now in a room like this, uh, that is formative. It's so important. You you may not feel the formation week in, week out, but over decades of your life, as as you come and we gather together and we lift up Jesus and we uh, sit under the preaching of the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, we listen to the word, Jesus is forming our heart. This is what he's doing. And today I want to take another step and explore another habit, the habit of repentance. The habit of repentance, or maybe more accurately, the habit of proactive repentance. That's what I'd like to explore with you today. And to do that, I want to look at two verses that come at the end of Psalm 139. And those two verses, in a lot of ways, make up and kind of form one of the boldest prayers in the Bible. Um, I I think this prayer that you see at the end of Psalm 139 requires as much faith, as much courage to pray as any prayer you're going to find in the Bible. And, And this is what that prayer sounds like, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This text introduces us to what we'll call proactive repentance. 
Uh, now, before we jump in, I just want to give a quick shout out to Kelly Needham. She came and did a uh, kind of a teaching with our staff several years ago and uh, talked about this. And it was so helpful for our staff that we just want to make that helpful for our whole church family along the way as well. This idea of proactive repentance. Uh, so here's what I want to do. I, I want to do some work on that word repentance. And I, I want to just try to, to maybe step back from the Bible for a moment and take Genesis to Revelation. And that's just to think about how that word shows up and some of what we see about that word in the scriptures. So I want to say three things. I just want to show you three things from the scriptures about that word repentance. Three things. Here's the first. One thing we learn about this word in the scriptures is that repentance is habitual or continual. Repentance is habitual in the Christian life. So that word repentance is a huge word in the Bible. If you go to the Old Testament, you're going to see the Hebrew word translated um, as repentance. You're going to see that show up over a thousand times in the Old Testament. That's the Bible giving a lot of real estate to a word, right? You know that word is massively important if it is showing up a thousand times in the Old Testament. And then when you get to the New Testament, the, the New Testament opens with the words of John the Baptist saying, repent, repent. And you get to Jesus' first sermon. It's summarized in Mark 1.15 like this. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the summary of Jesus' first sermon. And then you get Jesus' final words. At the end of the gospel of Luke, Jesus says to the disciples, repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be preached to all the nations. Then you get to the early church in Acts and Peter stands up in Jerusalem and he preaches to this crowd. And the crowd responds in Acts 2 by saying, what must we do to be saved? And Peter responds back, repent, repent. So you're seeing this word is huge in the Bible. Repentance is not a side issue in the Christian life. It is a central issue in the Christian life. So what does that word repentance mean? What does that mean? Um, I think if you cut it to the core, repentance, uh, this is just, a, I think, a, a helpful way to think about it, is it's turning from sin and turning to the Savior. It's, it's repositioning the whole trajectory and um, way my life is working from going from this way toward my sin to this way going toward Jesus. That's repentance. It's turning from what's killing us, sin, to the one saving us, Jesus. It's turning from what's taking life, sin, to what's giving us life, Jesus. Now, I love how J.I. Packer talks about it. He says, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. That's repentance. And in the scriptures, repentance is called a gift. It's a gift that the Lord gives us. And it's a gift because it is God who awakens us to our sin, being aware of our sin. It's God who awakens us to who he is, his holiness and, and all that God is. And it's God who awakens us to his grace. 
And it's when God awakens all of those things in a human heart that repentance happens, that we turn from our sin to our Savior, to Jesus. And repentance is meant to be habitual, continual, ongoing in the Christian life. So just think about the Christian life for a moment. Uh, The Christian life, your life with Jesus, it starts with repentance. Repentance is is the door you enter into, by which you enter into a relationship with Jesus. It is how we come into to right relationship, a restored relationship, a reconciled relationship with God. But the same repentance that starts the Christian life stays in the Christian life. We don't graduate out of repentance. It's not like we repent on the front end of this thing and then we kind of move on to other things in the Christian life. No, it it starts the Christian life and it stays in the Christian life. So if you just think about what a Christian is, they are a repenter, right? They have repented, past tense, and they are repenting, present tense. That's a Christian. Just ongoing, habitually repenting. About 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the ch- uh, church door in Wittenberg. And that, that moment sparked the Protestant Reformation. And the first of those 95 statements that were nailed to that church door uh, was this. Here was statement number one. When our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance. The whole of your Christian life, from start to finish and every little step along the way, it should be one of repentance. So that means repentance is not a one-time event. It's a lifelong habit. That's repentance, a lifelong habit. A a Christian is not a one-time repenter, but a lifelong, a continual, a habitual repenter. That's a Christian. Now, why is that? Well, the short answer is because as long as sin remains in us, repentance will be necessary for us. As long as sin remains, repentance will be necessary. So uh, think about for a moment how you measure your growth in godliness. Because I think a lot of us have a faulty way of measuring. And here's the faulty way of measuring. Um, Am I maturing in Jesus? The next question is, okay, well, here's how I'm going to determine that. How long has it been since my last sin? That's the way most of us think about it. What's the distance between me and the last sin of my life? That is not a good way to measure maturity because here is one mark of maturity. You are growing more and more aware of how sin permeates everything you do. If sin were a blue dye and your life is a a jar of water and the blue dye comes into the water, sin has a way, just like that blue dye, of of permeating every part of that blue water. And and part of you growing in maturity is just your awareness of like, there's nothing I'm, I'm doing that doesn't have a twinge or a little bit of a blue stain of sin in it and around it. So as long as that's true, repentance is always going to be necessary. So it just doesn't make sense to say, um, how long has it been? Has it been like three months, Uh, three weeks, three? No, it's like, what am I doing that doesn't have the twinge of blue in it, right? 
So it's just not a reliable way to say, oh, I'm measuring my maturity by how long has it been since I've last sinned. A much better mark of your maturity is, how long has it been since I have last repented? Since my last moment of recognizing the blue dye that's in everything, the sin that just is so pervasive in everything that I'm doing and saying and how I'm operating, how long has that been? So maybe we could just ask that question of ourselves right now. When's the last moment that you have brought your heart before the Lord and just with a sincere, open heart said, God, here's the mess of me, here's my sin. God, would you forgive me? God, would you help me? When's the last time that moment of just a genuine moment of repentance has happened? That is how you can mark maturity in your life because repentance is meant to be habitual, ongoing. I so appreciate how Tim Keller talks about repentance. He says, I can say to you without fear of preacherly hyperbole, and I am very afraid of preacherly hyperbole because it's like the, the, whatever we're talking about is always the biggest, best thing, right? So it's like he's saying, I, I can say this without fear of that. There is no fear of overstating this that Jesus says repentance is the gate to everything. The gate to everything. Your growth in godliness, your maturity, it's the gate to everything. So again, is this an ongoing habit in your life? How long has it been since you have last repented? Repentance is habitual. Here's the second thing I want you to see from the scriptures. Repentance can be reactive. So that is a way of repenting. It's one path toward repentance, what we might call reactive repentance. And reactive repentance happens when our sin is entrenched in our life, when it becomes so pronounced in our life that we can no longer sort of work around our sin, that we can no longer um, avoid our sin. When that happens, reactive repentance is coming. Uh, reactive repentance um, happens because we're resisting the tender love of God. We're resisting the gentle whispers of God in our life. And because we're resisting the, the gentle love and whispers of God in our life, God has to come crashing through the front door of our lives. That's reactive repentance. Now, let me give you an illustration of reactive repentance. There's a lot of these in the Bible, but let me give you this one. It comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it contains a, a sad story in the life of David. David, ironically, is the same guy who wrote one, uh, Psalm 139. But that same guy has a story, a chapter of his life uh, in 2 Samuel 11 that is so sad. Uh, one day he walks um, out onto the top of his palace and he sees Bathsheba, a married woman. And David begins to ask around about Bathsheba. And here was the response back to David. Oh, you're talking about Bathsheba. She is Uriah's wife, David. David, she has a husband. Uh, David, she is married. She's Uriah's wife. Uriah, the guy who is a soldier in your army fighting on your behalf. D David, she's Uriah's wife. That, that's the response that comes back to David. But David, with a callous heart, pushes right past that piece of news. And he takes Bathsheba and in doing that breaks the seventh commandment among many others. 
And then he gets news that Bathsheba is pregnant. Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, is now pregnant. And so now he's got a new problem to solve. And to solve that problem, David commands uh, the commander of his army to put Uriah on the front line where the battle is most intense and then to draw some troops back so that Uriah will die on the front line of that battle. Then 2 Samuel 11 ends. And that chapter does not end with David repenting. It doesn't end with him grieving over his sin. That's not the way it ends. 2 Samuel 11 ends with these words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sends Nathan, a prophet, to visit David. And Nathan tells David a story, and it's a story about two men. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. And the rich man had a whole flock of lambs. I mean, he just had more lambs than he could count. Uh, But the poor man had one lamb, and and this was like a pet lamb. I mean, this was like a part of the family type of a lamb. It's like a dog that's a lamb. So he's sleeping in the house. He's eating off the table. I mean, it's, it's that lamb. The poor man has just one, and it's that type of a lamb. And the rich friend has a friend visit. The rich man did. And uh, when the friend visited, rather than taking one of the countless lambs that the rich man had, he went and took the poor man's lamb, slaughtered that lamb, and fed his friend with that lamb. And when David hears that story, he is enraged. He looks back at Nathan and says, that guy's got to die. And then Nathan looks at David and says, David, you are that man. You are that man. And in that moment, David's heart just sank and his life began to collapse around that. Now, what are we seeing there? Well, we're seeing a moment of reactive repentance. When we refuse Jesus long enough, 2 Samuel 11 is showing us that that Jesus will wound us with his tough love. Now, let me be clear here. That's not, Jesus is not wounding us to spite us. He's wounding us to save us. He's not wounding us because he dislikes us. He's wounding us because he loves us. That's the story of 2 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Right? When we refuse his tender love, when we ignore that gentle whisper of the Lord, when we re- resist and when we refuse to respond to God, here is what God will do for all of his sons and daughters. He will bust through the front door of our life, exposing our sin for the sake of our rescue. That's what God does. Now, let me say two things about reactive repentance. Uh, here's the first. Uh, Reactive repentance shows us our need for community. It shows us our need for community. Uh, Because the reason uh, we need reactive repentance, the whole reason it's reactive is because we are resisting God. We have put our heels in the sand and we're, we're not budging with God. We're not listening. We're not responding to God. That we've grown to love our sin so much that we are refusing to kill our sin. That that's what makes reactive repentance needed. And we're all prone to this. You are prone to that. I am prone to that. Every one of us here are prone to doing that. Growing to love our sin so much that we will not kill it. 
So that means we all need a Nathan or Nathans in our life, don't we? You need a Nathan in your life. I need a Nathan. We all need Nathans in our life who love us enough that when needed will wound us. We, we all need that. So, so let me ask you the, that question. Do you have a Nathan or Nathans in your life? Do you have those? If not, one of the things I'm just asking the Lord on your behalf today is that you would get some Nathans. That you would like even look around this room and find some people and just ask the question, who do I need to become friends with? Because I need a Nathan. I need Nathans. So, so God, I'm going to approach them. I'm going to ask. I'm going to be proactive in developing friendships so that when I need it, I will have people who will wound me. God, I need Nathans. So reactive repentance shows us the importance of community. Secondly, I just want to point this out again, that reactive repentance is the hard way, right? It's, it's the hard way. Our relationship with God is not designed to go that way, but, but it's one way, the hard way that we get to repentance. But reactive repentance is painful. It's exposing because God is loving us enough. It's tough love, but he's loving us enough uh, that he's standing between us and the ruin in this moment that our hearts want. And he's saying, I'm not going to let you go in this. I'm not going to let you pass me in this. No, I'm not going to let you ruin your life. He'll wound us to rescue us. That's reactive repentance. It's the hard way. It's a way, one way toward repentance, but it's not the only way, right? Reactive repentance, uh, or repentance can be reactive, but it doesn't have to be reactive. Repentance, and here's the third thing I want to just consider with you. Repentance should be proactive. It should be proactive. See, if forced, Jesus will wound us with his tough love. But hear me on this. Jesus would rather woo you with his tender love. He'll wound if necessary, but he would so much rather woo you and whisper to you in a way that you're responding to him. He'd rather us come to him with an open heart and listen to his voice. He'd rather us hear him say, here's an area of your life that I want to address. I don't need a Nathan to tell you that. I want you to listen to my voice. Here's an area that needs to be addressed in your life. Here's something that you've been blind to for a long time. And I want to give you eyes right now in this season of your life to see this, this thing right here in your life that, that you haven't noticed before. Here's a particular sin that you've grown accustomed to. It's entrenched in your life. And this is the season. I've waited until now. This is the season, though, that this thing has to be addressed. That we've got to go here and deal with this thing right now. This is the season to do that that we would come to the Lord and listen as he says, here's this deep issue in your heart that I, I've, it's been in there for years and I know it's painful for you. I know you don't even want to look at it. I know you would like to avoid it, but if we avoid it any longer, it's going to start ruining your life, doing damage to everyone around you. So this is the season that some of these deep things, we're just going to have to draw these out. And you're going to have to trust that my tender grace can heal these areas of your life. This is the season to do it right now though that we would come to God like that habitually. 
listening to his voice, responding to his whispers. See, rather than busting through the front door of our life, wounding us with his tough love, he would rather, rather come to us in wooing whispers, with this tender love drawing us to the places that he wants us to go. He would rather us come to him proactively, inviting us into the entirety of our life with a, with a heart ready to respond to whatever it is that, that he shows us. So let's think about David for a moment. David shows us reactive repentance, right? That's 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12. That's what's happening in 2 Samuel, right? And so he shows us reactive repentance, but here in Psalm 139, he models for us proactive repentance. He models the other side of that. And you see this in the last two verses. Listen to what David prays at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Search me. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now think about what David's praying here. He's saying, oh God, search me. Search my heart. Your heart is like a vast world. And in the world of your heart, there are beautiful mountain ranges that are just stunning. Inside of your heart, there are lush valleys that are just amazing. Right? All of that's in your heart. And in your heart are dark, deep crevices. They, they are so dark and deep that you, there's probably been a moment or two where the Lord's taken you to the edge of it and you've peered over and it's been so scary that you have backed as far up as you can and you just said, you know what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life? I'm gonna live over by these beautiful mountain ranges and I'm gonna kind of set up a home over in this lush valley and that's where I'm gonna live. And for the rest of my life, I'm going to avoid what I think I might have seen down there. So I'm just going to stay as far away from that as I can, and I'm going to set up shop over here. And over time, we become very skillful in avoiding the dark, deep parts of us. And we have a way of hanging a no trespassing sign over there and communicating to God in all the subtle ways that we do, uh, God, you can, you can go explore anywhere you want in this beautiful mountain range and this lush valley, but God, don't you dare rappel down into that dark, deep crevice with a flashlight. And we have a way of um, telling our friends, hey, you can explore anything you want over there, but don't you get near that place. And we have a way of telling ourselves, life is going to be a lot better over here. Let's just avoid all of that. We become so skilled at just avoiding that, those things that we don't want to see about us, making sure nobody else gets to address those things, but we become very skilled at, at doing that. But not David. David is saying, there is no part of my life or heart that is off limits to you, God. That dark, deep ravine is scary. I, don't, I really don't want you doing it. Oh, it's painful for me to pray it. But God, I am inviting you to search any part of my heart that needs to be searched. God, if you need to get the spotlight 
and you need to repel down in there, and I, you've got some things to show me down in there. Uh, God, I'm okay with that. God, if that's what I need, would you do that? That's what David is saying here. He's saying, there is no part of my heart that is off limits to you, O God. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's the imagery of testing metals. Uh, All metal comes in an ore, right? It comes in a rock, and that rock has um, metal in it. Let's just say iron or whatever the gold, whatever the metal is. It's got the metal in it, but it also has all of this rock and impurities and dross in it. So there is this, there's this process of testing and trying where you're having to separate. Typically, you have to heat up, and then it separates the dross from what is pure there. And David is saying, God, you can do that. Would you search my heart? And God, would you test my thoughts? God, there's, there's nothing off limits. I, I'm just asking you with an open heart to come in and show me what I need to see right now in my life and heart, God. What, would you do that? Now, this is proactive repentance. This is not waiting on the Lord to bust down your front door, but it's coming to the Lord with a a calm, quiet heart saying, God, would you search me? God, would you try me? God, would you see if there's any grievous thing in me that I don't know about that you want me to know about? God, God, would would you do that? Now, let me finish by answering three questions about proactive repentance. And we'll just kind of land the plane here. Three questions about uh, proactive repentance. Here's the first. Why do we need it? Why do we need this prayer at the end of Psalm 139? Why is that needed? And gosh, that could be sermons in itself. Let me just give you two quick reasons. Uh, One is because sin blinds. That's one attribute of sin. Sin innately um, avoids detection in our life. So that makes it hard to see for you, hard to see for me in our life. Sin so often masquerades in something so much more noble looking than sin. So as if, for instance, think about the person who um, says a harsh word towards someone else. There's a great chance that in that moment, to that person, it doesn't feel like a harsh word. It just feels like, listen, man, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just a straight shooter telling, that's what it feels like. It doesn't feel like harshness. It feels like something much more noble than harshness. Uh, For the person who is eaten up with bitterness and resentment and just is lacking forgiveness, uh, when, when they are just, the, the wounds are coming out and exploding towards someone else, they're not saying, you know what, that's unforgiveness. Man, that is like the ugliness of resent, resentment. And, no, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like, no, I just care about justice here. There's, there's a wrong that's needed to be righted. And I'm just trying to right the wrong. That's what it feels like in the moment. Or think about David. Uh, for David, he, he didn't feel like a sinner when he went after Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. Uh, When David gave the order to have Uriah killed, he didn't feel like a murderer. He felt like a general. Hey, the mission's what's important. Let's go get the mission done. This is is what's required. There's going to be casualties, right? That's that's what he feels like in the moment. He doesn't feel like a murderer in the moment. And this explains why, why we're all so much better at seeing the wrongs in others than we are at seeing the wrongs in us. 
You're a lot better at that. I'm a lot better at that. We're all so much better. That's why Jesus says, hey, before you try to take the little speck out of that person's eye, you might want to pay attention to the log that's in your own, right? Because he knows sin has a way of resisting detection in our life. So think about what this prayer is. Search me and try me, oh God. It's an admission that, God, I'm often blind to my own sin. I'm going to need help. Right? So it's admission and it's a plea. It's, God, I do need help in seeing. So God, would you open up my eyes so that I could see everything that you would want me to see right now? Father, would you do that? God, would you help me with my blindness? The things that I'm avoiding, the things that are entrenched. God, would you help me see what needs to be seen? So why do we need it? Well, because sin blinds. But uh, another reason we need it is because sin entrenches itself. The longer sin remains in our life, the more rooted it becomes. The longer it remains, the more rooted, right? So we often use the imagery of a tree to describe that. So uh, think about two yards. Uh, Yard number one and yard number two have oak trees in the yard. Uh, But yard number one has an oak tree that is 70, 80 feet tall, these massive branches, just this huge trunk. It is a big, gorgeous, amazing tree. Uh, But yard number two has an oak tree, uh, but it's a much different version of an oak tree. It's an oak tree that's just come up and out of the ground. It's like six inches tall. It has just come up and out of the acorn, just beginning to shoot a root down that tree. Now imagine someone comes to you and says, uh, it is the day to cut down the oak tree. What yard are you hoping they're talking about? Right? You're sure hoping it's yard number two, right? Because what does yard number two take? It's like one gentle tug and that guy's out. But yard number two, it's, that's the moment, right? If we resist that yard number one moment long enough, then it requires a Nathan armed with a chainsaw and a whole gang of guys to come and start chopping down the limbs of that tree, right? This is what sin does. That's, That's a picture of sin in your life, in my life. It just has a way of entrenching itself. And the only way we don't entrench sin in our life is to progressively, habitually, ongoingly, continually coming before the Lord, proactively repenting. God, search me. God, test my heart, test my thoughts. But what do you want me to see about my life right now? Why do we need it? Because sin blinds, it entrenches. Why do we resist it? Why is this hard to do for us? Why is this habit not in most of our lives? But why is that? Let me just give you two quick reasons on that. One is because we have a distorted view of repentance. A distorted view of repentance. Um, You're familiar with word association games, right? So if I say the word green, you just say the next thing that comes to your mind. Maybe it's grass, whatever it is that comes to mind. Uh, It's been interesting for me over the years to see what gets attached in a word association game to the word repentance. And what I found is most often it is a negative word. That's what gets attached to it. Now, there is no doubt that repentance has some hard things embedded into it. There is grieving over our sin. There's sorrow over our sin. There's killing some sin. All of that is embedded in repentance. But in the Bible, when you play the word association game with repentance, it is not a negative thing. It is a life bestowing thing. 
That's repentance. It's not seen negatively in the Bible. It is the gateway to everything in the Bible. It's seen in a positive. This is, this is you coming back to life. That's repentance. I, I love how Acts chapter 3, 19 talks about it. It says, repent therefore and turn back. Why would we do that? To just to die? No, not to die. Why? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Who couldn't use in this room some, some refreshment from the presence of the Lord? I doubt anybody in here came too refreshed by Jesus today. I just doubt that's your problem, right? We could all use more of that. And here's what repentance is. It's turning from sin, the very thing that's killing us. And it's coming back to Jesus, the very person bestowing life and refreshment and hope to our heart. That's repentance. I love how my friend Ray Ortland talks about it. He says, sin sounds wonderful, amazing in theory, but it leaves a bitter aftertaste. On the other hand, repentance sounds terrible in theory, not good in theory, but it leaves us calm, relaxed, and free. Who couldn't use more of that? Calm, relaxed, and free. That's where repentance takes you. It's life-giving. It's, it's refreshing for us. It's how we get back beside the giver of life. That's repentance. But we resist because we have that distorted view of repentance. And we also resist because we have a distorted view of God. The biggest reason we resist repentance is because we're just unsure how God actually feels about us. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? Let me just do the Cliff Notes version of it. The younger son rebelliously demands his share of the inheritance. And in what must have just been such a heart-rending moment for the father, he's the picture of God in the parable, the father, uh, the father gives him his share of the inheritance. And he watches his son run into the far country, just an all-out rebellion. And there in the far country, he spends everything on reckless living. And uh, his life just goes up in ashes. And he's just sitting in the ashes of his life. And there, the Bible says, he came to his senses. And he started the journey home. But his repentance, right? Turning from the far country, from sin, and coming back to, to God, the Father. Repentance, his repentance, was full of misconceptions about his dad, about God. And you see this in Luke chapter 15, verse 17. The text says, but when he, talking about the younger son who's coming back now to the father, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. There's repentance. I'm going to go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So think about what he's saying. Part of what he's saying is true. There's truth in what he's saying. He wasn't worthy to be called his son. That's true. But at the same time, what he's saying is absolutely false. He has a gross underestimation uh, of the Father's grace in his life. 
He is just grossly underestimating how much his dad loves him, how, how much grace his dad has for him. I love how Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson talks about this in his book, Children of the Living God. Listen to him explain this moment. He says, although the story is probably the best known and loved of all of Christ's parable, uh, parables, the lesson it teaches us is often overlooked. Jesus was underlying the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing in the world to dawn upon us. As we fix our eyes upon ourself and our past failures and our present guilt, it seems impossible to us that the Father could love us. He goes on to say this, Many Christians, in light of that, many Christians go through much of their lives, I love this phrase, he says, with a prodigal suspicion. If God really repels down into that deep, dark ravine and finds all the stuff that's down there, the monsters in there, what's God going to think about me? When God sees all of that, the worst of me, what, what is God going to think about me? Ironically, Psalm 139 is written to convince you that God does know you. The best and brightest parts of you, the beautiful parts of you, and the dark parts of you, everything in that dark, deep ravine, he knows all of that, and he loves you. The whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is written to look every son and daughter of God in the eye and say, God knows everything about you. There is nothing in your life he doesn't know better than you know it, with more detail than you know it. He knows it all and he still loves you, which means the good news of Jesus, here's what the Bible is trying to free you to be able to do. It's trying to free you to be able to, to come to Jesus with your absolute worst, knowing that when you come with your absolute worst, God's heart is, is not just tolerating you. It's not just sort of, God's not holding his nose as he puts his arm around you. No, God's heart, when you bring your worst, is leaping towards you. It's just, it's springing towards you. Because God loves over and over again to bring his best to cover your worst. That's just, that's just what the grace of God loves to do. It's what the gospel is trying to convince you of and me of. We can bring our worst because God loves to bring the balm of his best to cover us. So why do we resist repenting? Because we're just unsure. How does God actually feel about me? And the Bible is looking at you and saying today, here's how I feel. I know all of you and I still love you. Question number three, and we're done. How do we do it? So we're going to send you some things today just to give you a guide for this. Um, but let me just say this today and encourage you in this way. How, how do we do it? Um, well, first of all, I want to just emphasize again, we're not after. Your formation will not happen with a spasm of repentance. Won't happen that way. 
it requires a habit of repentance. That's what we're after, the habit of repentance. So here's what this would look like. It looks like you often, habitually, continually, in an ongoing way, maybe that's once a week, maybe that's a couple of times a week, maybe that's three or four times a week, setting aside 10 minutes of your life and allowing your heart to just declutter for a moment. Taking a few deep breaths. Just ratcheting down the noise of your life. Just 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is. And then we read Psalm 139. And then you get to the end of Psalm 139 and you pray that bold, courageous prayer. God, search my heart. God, would you, would you try me? And God, would you test my thoughts? God, would you, would you see, I'm having a hard time seeing right now, so God, would you, would you just take a look around and see if there's any grievous way in me, oh God? So we pray it, asking the Lord to do it. And then we listen. We listen. We don't want God to have to crash down the front door of our life. We just want to be able to listen to the whispers and the wooing of Jesus. And you know what I, what I just, I so love about the Lord? Is when we do this, he loves to answer our prayers. He loves to talk to us. He loves to come in and show us these things and to lead us into new and green pastures. And he just loves to do this. And I, I so appreciate that right now in your life, there are, 10,000 things wrong. And in my life, there's 20,000 things wrong. Uh, but when, when we do this habitually and continually, do you know what the Lord does for us? He doesn't point out all 10,000 things in your life and mine. He says, here's, here's just the next one. Here's what I want you to see right now. Here's what I want you to notice. Here's, here's what we need to address. He says, I, I, I'm taking you places. I've got things for you to do. And I, here's the things that are going to need to be addressed or we're going to ruin those things. So th this is the season. Right now is the moment. We, we can't prolong this anymore. Right now is the moment. So here's the, the thing, the two things, the three things that I want you to see and I want you to know. And, and church, you know what happens when we're habitually practicing this habit? Jesus has a way of forming our hearts so that more and more and more it's reflecting the heart of God reflexively. So just there where you are, I want you to go ahead and bow your head. And I just want to give you a moment to practice this, to do this. Just be able to take a deep breath 
Turn down the noise of your life. And then to pray that prayer, oh God, search my heart. God, would you test my thoughts? God, would you see if there's any grievous weight in me? God, you can explore whatever you want to explore in my heart. But I'm just coming with an open heart and open hands. And now, listen. things are that God brings to mind, respond. So Father, would you minister to us now? God, would you take the grace of the gospel? God, would you bring it into our life right now? And as we're turning from sin and coming back to you, Father, would you refresh us and encourage us and meet us in all the ways our hearts and our lives Oh, God, would you do it? And it's in your good name that we pray.